Well, good morning to you. Um, I was informed when I got here this morning that I'm losing the competition on the best dressed. And uh, we all agreed together at that one moment that Gary Wilson actually wins. Gary, would you please stand for us? Yes, please just, just stand. Let us see. What? A, all right, right there. Whew. We are unworthy to be in your presence. Actually, I, I'm impressed because Joe can preach in shorts. I just can't do that. Okay? I just cannot do that. It is. It is. It is. You want a piece of me? <laughs> All right, let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ and thank you for the wonderful, absolutely wonderful expression of love through him. When we, when we see him... We actually, we, we, we ponder this expression. What is it, this, what is this word you gave us? It's a word of love, isn't it? It's a word of mercy. It's a word of kindness. It's a word of patience. It's a word of self-sacrifice. This is the message, the content of the, of the expression of Jesus Christ. We'd like to thank you. May we, with a great sense of dependency, ask you, Father, to give us bread this hour. We need you to break the bread and feed us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, um, as you know, uh, we've been talking about the principles of the Word of God as it pertains to marriage. And uh, uh, we started out uh, with an introduction, and, and then we sort of looked at the original design, and when we did so, we saw how God officiated the first message, and we looked at the content of his message, and yesterday we reviewed what it means to leave and to cleave. We looked at that phrase briefly, and the two shall become one flesh, and I mentioned to you that there are three places in the New Testament, really four, but two of them refer to the same topic, uh, where this phrase is repeated. And the first one deals with the permanence of marriage. And the second one deals with fidelity in marriage. And that comes out of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where it talks about um, having uh, uh, the purity aspect of the marital, re- uh, marital relationship. And then the third uh, use of that message of God when he officiated the first wedding was in Ephesians. And we're going to spend a bit of time in Ephesians. That's for this hour. Now, when we did so, what we, uh, what we did is we went through the fall. If it, God started it out so beautifully and pristinely with the concept of, of dealing with the isolation a, uh, aspect of mankind, and he put it all together and called that good, then what happened? And we looked at the fall, and we looked at several Ds, right? Several things that occurred, and decurse was one of those. Right? Remember that deferral, that blame game. We're good at it. I actually think I have a PhD in blaming. It's, it's natural for me. And so we have this, this whole concept of all these elements that seem to rip apart the marriage, the flesh, the nature of sin, the distrust. Did you notice that? I didn't emphasize that yesterday, but 
the distrust factor that entered in between when Satan attempted Eve, that she distrusted God. I would suggest to you that distrust is, of course, uh, a dividing element in the marital relationship, too. You, this is how it works out. You see, it was by faith we were supposed to believe the word of God and order ourselves. We chose not to believe God nor his word. And therefore, God uses faith, full persuasion, to be the common currency of all dispensation for believers. You know what I mean by that? That is, if you believe what God said at Rahab's day, you would be, you would be saved, right? You would be uh, uh, put in Abraham's bosom, as it were. And, and then we move forward in time, and now post-Christ, that is post-cross, how, how are we saved today? By faith. And so God uses the currency of belief to actually right all that's been undone because that was the very first bridge we burned in the Garden of Eden. Does that make sense? Thus, you can see that if God has such a premium on the concept of faith, believing not just the word, but the person who backs up the word, that if God has such a premium on that, then faith, uh, uh, trust, that synonym I'm using, is, is going to need to be inherent in the mar marital relationship. And I would submit to you that trust one to another in the marital relationship is by far and away one of the most important building blocks between a man and a woman. Mutual trust. How does that work out practically? Well, I'll tell you how it works out practically in my wife and our, in our relationship. I have nothing hidden, right? I don't have a secret checking account. I don't have a secret credit card. I don't have a secret P.O. box. She sees everything that I spend and everywhere I go. I am tracked by her on my cell phone. Does that bother me? Not a bit. Why? Because I want her to know where I'm at. Well, Steve, do you have TVs in the house? Yes, we do. We've got five of them. They're all controlled by her code, right? Why, why do we do that? Is, that? is that some sort of law? No, no, no. It's just our practical way of making sure that we have transparency one to another. That is very important. You, you, as you grow in your, in your marital lives, you, you, you newlyweds, right? You preserve that. You fight for that. You don't be afraid to be broken and don't be afraid to be broken in front of each other. That's what this is about. It's part of the fingerprints of God. And then yesterday we, we went to Ephesians and we looked at this whole concept about how the curse can be reversed, how the old nature, the nature of sin can be um, taken over by the divine nature, the nature of Christ in his spirit through you. And I had the children on the stage, weren't they lovely? Yes, they're lovely. I, I have to say that some of them were mine, <laughs> right? Just kidding, William. I, I'm, I was sincere. Thank you. Okay. So we talked about loving authority, and we, we read Ephesians where it says, uh, wives, submit to your husbands. And at first glance, that sort of raises the fur on our back, but we needed to read it in context, not only of Ephesians 5, but the context of what happened in Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, the loving authority, willing submission was turned upside down so that that which should be willingly submissive was now lording over, if I may, was now, was now, was now being the authority. 
And God called out Adam on that. And Eve, and it's almost like Eve was saying, well, if that's the way you want to do it, then this is the frustration that will be part of your existence. And so we see that happening there. And then we come to the New Testament, and all of a sudden we have this terminology which gives us a real sense of harmony and peace where loving authority and willing submission is reestablished. And we looked at it from the cross, and we saw how God the Father and God the Son demonstrated this loving authority and willing submission. And I suggested to you that if it wasn't but for that dynamic... I am unsure how our salvation would ever have been paid. It required, it demanded that the Lord Jesus come and say the following words, not my will, but yours be done. No man on the planet said it like that man. That's what's so unique about him. Thus, we put him as Christ as head of man. Because it is man, the first man, and we following the first man, who followed suit, where we would not want to be under his authority. We didn't want to be willingly submissive. That's what God called them out in that in Genesis chapter 3. And Christ comes along, and he does it perfectly, and so he's our head. And I suggested to you, gentlemen, whether you're married or not, gentlemen, you have a personal obligation to be totally loyal and surrendered to your head, Jesus Christ. So people ask me, who is the head of your home? Let me tell you, it's the Lord. That's it. I have to have that in my heart. It is my responsibility. If, there's gonna, if we're going to move spiritually, it's going to be my responsibility. Do not men depend upon your wife to move spiritually. They can. They're capable. They're sensitive. They know the word of God, but it's your responsibility. If you want to, if you want to shirk that, I, I'm sorry. I, I'm I'm going to rebuke you. You're not doing it right, especially when the children come along. Those children need to know that you th- see your relationship with God and the priorities that you set for your family. They need to know that that's coming from you, O oh men. They need to know that. You don't have to be brutal about it. You don't have to be unkind about it. But you do have to lead about it. So we have this dynamic, and it's Christ and the man. And then we transferred it over like it's a mirror of man and woman. And again, I was very clear, it's not inferiority. Because if we say it's inferiority, then what we're saying is that Christ is inferior to God. You know what we call that? Blasphemy. All right? Heresy. That's what that is. So we can't say that. What we have to say, therefore, is that this is only a mere reflection of the dynamic between God the Father and God the Son. And you, my friends, as inkwells of paint used by the masterful artesian's hand, will dip his, his, his brush in your gender and use it to paint this grand truth that was necessary to secure your salvation. And it says in Ephesians these beautiful words that we, the church, are the ones to announce to principalities and powers, the angelic hosts, the manifold wisdom of God. And he's doing it by using paint wells of gender. Isn't that, I think that's just brilliant, personally. And then what he does is he allows this fingerprint to be in in every facet of our society, of our lives. I might add, I might add, he uses the same dynamic and he allows it to be portrayed literally within the church. And that, that of course, comes to us in several ways. Now, just for a little aside, I want you to, to think with me for a minute. Everything that happens to you spiritually is really intangible. You, you don't see it, do you? 
I mean, I can't really see your heart. I don't know if you trusted Christ. It's intangible. It's invisible. It's, it's, uh, it's not flesh and bone. Jesus said it that way. It's born of the Spirit. Now, well, some of the things that happened to you spiritually happened to you instantaneously, the moment you took your first spiritual breath, right? The moment you took your first spiritual breath, you were introduced and baptized, immersed into the body of Christ through the Spirit of God. That's intangible. You know, we don't find that on the shelves at the grocery store. That's in the Word of God. We believe it because he said it. Now, God uses tangible ways to demonstrate the intangible. For example, we have a cup and we have a bread, and that was instituted by the Lord Jesus, and that demonstrates multiple truths, multiple doctrinal truths in one simplistic, visible way. Baptism does the same thing. The baptism, it's not special that we have a tub of water, especially when it's freezing cold. Yeah, we, <laughs> that's always a killer when you step into that ice-cold water. That message is really fast. But that's the, that's the tangible way to demonstrate that you're, you are united with Christ, buried and rose again. That's the tangible way that he's demonstrating what is intangible. Well, there's another little hint of how God uses in, uh, tangible things to demonstrate intangible ideas. And that's, of course, you would, you would probably guess it, through the covering of a lady's glory. Notice I didn't say hair. I said your glory. That's really beautiful, isn't it? You have an opportunity demonstrating an intangible truth through a simplistic, tangible way. Now we say, well, you know, you need to cover your head because it's a symbol of authority. Let me ask you, who's a symbol of authority of who? What you're doing is that you are covering your head to demonstrate a tangible way, the intangible aspect of what Christ has done. He took a place under the willing submission, under the loving authority of his Father. You do so also. You do so not only by that physical demonstration, but you also will demonstrate that you're going to cover your glory so that the only glory that's now symbolically seen in the herald of the truth of God, that is the church, is his glory. I I think this is really brilliant how God weaves his stuff together. Tangible versus intangible. Now back to our story in Ephesians. Let's go there to read Ephesians together. Ephesians chapter 5 is where I need you to turn. And I'm going to open the passage by that verse where we started yesterday. Because as you know, none of this will happen unless the Spirit of God is actually able to master all of your life. In other words, it's surrender on your part and it's possession on his part. And so it begins in verse 18. And do not be drunk with wine, which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to in your heart to the Lord. Excuse me. Giving thanks always. Giving thanks always. Giving thanks always. Did you catch that? All right. Giving thanks always for things to, <laughs> to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submitting to one another. Notice that, submitting to one another. There is a sense when you're controlled by the Spirit of God that there is a mutual submission one to another. How does that happen? By each taking our God-ordained roles. Willing submission, loving authority. And when he gets into this context, he reestablishes what was trampled at the fall. And so thus he says, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Now I want to stop there. 
Because what we find in the word of God, or what we find is that we have a distortion in our culture, and really I think by the play of Satan, of what it means to be willingly submissive. When I say that, I think most of us, including myself, would come up with some idea of a husband who's got some type of weirdo, sort of sadistic kind of uh, schizophrenic idea of you do what I say, when I say, how I say, where, where I say. And I want you to know, if that's your characterization of willing submission, that's heretical. Is that how Christ was submitted to the Father? No, that dynamic is not there. Whatever little idea you have about willing submission, you compare it to the the, the kind of willing submission the Lord Jesus had to his heavenly Father, then you're right. But let's get rid of these other arguments that have raised themselves up to distort the truth of what it means to be willingly submissive. And by the way, men, we're supposed to be willingly submissive too. So we got to get it straight also. And so when we read this, I, I think we want to uh, 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 dispel the, the fake, the distorted. So it's not some sort of, you know, Ozark kind of hillbilly thing. Okay, that's wrong. What it is, is this whole idea where the church takes her place to her beloved. Now, when you read Song of Solomon, which you could take in various avenues of interpretation, one of the things you noticed is that their relationship blossomed when she took that place. But there's another person in the Bible that demonstrates this well. 1 Peter chapter 3. Would you turn there with me? 1 Peter chapter 3. And I'd like you to read with me, beginning in verse 1, because it's a sister or parallel passage. And I would like you to see some of the dynamics that come out with this idea of submissive. By the, word, by the way, the word means to rank yourself underneath, to order yourself under in a certain pattern according to the direction of the loving authority. As Christ would have us do to him, so, we would, so the wives would do to their husbands. That's the parallel. Now notice what it says in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. Wives, be submissive, same word, be submissive to your husband's to your own husbands, that if, even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word. What does that mean? Well, in this context, I think it means that the husband is unbelieving and that by her behavior and this attitude, and mostly it's a disposition, an attitude of willing submission, that kind of dynamic will so speak to the unbelieving spouse that he will come to obey the truth in faith. That principle can be applied to a marriage where there is a believing, where they're both believers, and one of them, perhaps the husband, is not being obedient to the Lord, and she, through her her spirit of swilling submission, will God will use to speak to her husband, so that in the area that he's disobeying the word of God, he would be brought into obedience. That's what the principle is. That's the principle of this passage. Read it with me. It goes that if some do not obey the word, that without a word. I don't know how you think about things, but a lot of times when I want to convince you to do something, I got arguments galore. I got, and they're good ones. At least I think they are. Thank you, William. (laughs) I got to quit bringing him on all these things. He's listening. 
They may be won by the conduct. Listen, look at that. The conduct of their wives. When they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. In other words, the right attitude towards willing submission. That really speaks. That's what the Spirit of God uses to bring conviction. That's it. My goodness, look at what it says this. Rather, uh, uh, verse 5, For in this manner, in former times, the holy, men, uh, holy women who trusted in God, read that with me, who trusted in God, also adorned themselves, that is how they beautified themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. Oh, give me an example. Okay, how about Sarah? And it goes like this. Sarah obeyed Abraham, uh, uh, calling him Lord. You do not have to call your husband's Lord whose daughters you are if you do good and are not afraid without any terror. Here's how it works out. I like Abraham. I mean, he has a high standing in the word of God. Friend of God. Who wouldn't want to be called the friend of God? I do. Funny thing, he calls me his friend, though. Right? Anyway, so we're walking along the path of life, and God speaks to Abraham, and he says, I'd like you to go to a country where you're not going to know, and I'll show you how to get there, and you'll find there, you know, and it'll be yours. And he turns to Sarah and says, we're leaving tomorrow. Wow, you know, I can't, I can't tell my wife we're leaving tomorrow, okay? Any of you husbands ever try to do that? <laughs> you hear that laugh? Yeah, that's a laugh of experience. And so what happens is they move out south. Now they get out south and they don't know anyone. They're in enemy territory as far as they know. They could just be swallowed up by the people there. And they move around multiple places and eventually they end up in two locations in which events occur, which I have to say where Abraham's... I mean, you're stubbing your big toe, Mr. Faith. And he's down there in Egypt, and he says, listen, honey, you're beautiful and everything. Wow, you're the, you know, you're the hot potato here, and they're going to kill me when they see how beautiful you are. So let's not tell them you're my wife. Let's tell them you're my sister, because technically it's sort of half true. Well, that worked out well. <laughs> El Pharaoh said, hey, that's your sister? Fantastic. Then she's available. Why don't you have her come over and see me? <laughs> and now Abraham's going... Uh, 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 yeah. <laughs> At least I'm reaching the kids. <laughs> All right, where was I? Oh, yeah. Okay, so, so what happens there is that she submitted to that. Now, I have to say, that would have been a tough thing, wouldn't it? Yeah, I think so. See, how did she do that? Was it because Abraham showed great spiritual brilliance at that moment? Great trust from the father of faith? I don't think so. Notice, thank you. I noticed what it said. She trusted in God. Do you understand that? How do you really maintain a spirit of willing submission? That is, you are going to, with a full heart, place yourself under the rank and authority of another. That's hard. I know it is. Anybody who works in the workplace, we know what that's like. How do you do that? It's because you're not trusting your loving authority, that is the husband. You're trusting the God who governs the loving authority, that is your husband. You see that? It's very important you understand that. She was trusting in God to direct her husband and therefore to provide the leadership for her. That's how this faith thing works. That is one of the hardest things in all of human existence to do. You have to do it in the assembly, right? You got elders there, and I know because I've said it myself. I'm not sure I agree with the elders and everything. Really? Well, the elders don't agree with you on everything either. That's kind of news. But what you do is you trust the Lord 
to actually direct through the oversight, through the body of Christ. So what is your part? As willing submission, and I am submitting to my own elders, I actually pray and ask the Lord to overrule and guide the king's heart and direct through us because he's he's been very effective historically at directing through ungodly men such as Cyrus and Nebuchadnezzar, as we're hearing in our brother's ministry. Do you not think that God can then direct through his own children who hold, who hold his name? Yes. And this is what he's saying. In your marital relationship, you ask the Lord to direct through, through your husband. I do this in the workplace. I have to answer to CEOs and CNOs and, and DOPs or so, you know, dumb guys, D-U-U-Ms or whatever. And, you know, I still have to answer to them. And I ask the Lord to direct through them that he would direct and I would therefore be willingly submissive. It's a facet of all of our existence. That's why we, we have to have the Spirit of God fully dominating our, our lives so that we would demonstrate this on a repetitive and consistent basis. That's why he says submit one to another. It goes to the family dynamic in chapter 6 and the, and the uh, uh, employer dynamic in, in the, the second part of chapter 6. So, ladies, how do you do this? You're asking the Lord to direct through your husband. Now, let me give you some personal examples. I, uh, I'm a closet frustrated carpenter. I would love to build things. But when I try to build things, they actually don't turn out to be anything. So one day, I said to my lovely wife, <laughs> I'm going to finish the basement. Ooh. She looked at me as wives can do, and she said, are you sure? <laughs> now, men, I want you to know, you, you young men, you write this down. When they ask you, are you sure, they're not asking for an answer. <laughs> it's a rhetorical, probing, please consider this carefully question. Write that, Jake, write that down. <laughs> Sorry. What did he say? Twice. Twice. Yeah, 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 right. So she said, are you sure? I said, you know, young guy. Yeah, I'm sure. Of course I'm sure. She's not asking me if I'm confident, by the way. She's asking me, is this what God wants you to do? I said, yeah, yeah. She goes, very wise woman. She goes, let's do this. Why don't you pray about it and ask the Lord if it's his will? And I'll pray about it and ask the Lord if it's will. It's will. And if after a week you still feel God wants you to finish the basement yourself, then I'll support you. <laughs> I said, okay, no problem. I go into my closet. I have a hard heart. I come out a week later. I said, honey, I think the Lord wants me to finish the basement. She goes, are you sure? <laughs> I said, yes, ma'am, I am sure. She said, then I will help you do whatever you think the Lord wants you to do. So you know what? I go out and I start finishing the basement. And guess what I found out after about four days? I have no clue what I'm doing. No stinking clue. And so I'm working down there, hours on the wall. Guys that are carpenters takes them like 10 minutes. I'm like four hours, you know. And I'm getting the thing done. And after about two weeks, I come upstairs and I'm sweating. And you can see great drops of blood and everything. And I'm walking up there and I said, you know, honey, I'm not sure this is the Lord's will. Okay, now at that moment, she could have done the following two things. Told you! You dumbed him. She didn't. You know what she said to me? 
She said this. What do you think the Lord would have you do now? Man, it's like I married the living New Testament. <laughs> and I said, well, I think the Lord wants me to repent and, and hire somebody. She goes, funny you should say that. I've been researching who we might hire. <laughs> brilliant! <laughs> She's just brilliant. I'm going, wow, that's really helpful. Never did she once take my nose and rub it in the water. Never once did she demean me. Never once did she disrespect me. Never once. Let me tell you, why did she do that? She was trusting in her heavenly father to guide her husband. Do you understand that? That's how willing submission occurs. Now, men, men, listen up. What you do in loving authority affects everybody underneath you. And if you want to be a bonehead, that's in the Bible somewhere, I'm sure. The jawbone of the, never mind. If you want to be an idiot, your idiocy is going to affect everybody underneath you. Guess who suffered those two weeks while I was working on the basement? My wife and my children, they suffered. How did they suffer? My time, my irritation, and the fact that I really don't have any patience. Really, none. Zippo. They all suffered at that, those two weeks of my presuming that God was convinced of my will as his will. Men, when it says that you're loving authority, you know what that means, right? That you do not have all authority. That you, as Christ's authority was derived totally from the Father. Everything I do, I do because I heard it from him. Everything I say is because it's what he told me to say. Every action that you see is only an extension of my heavenly Father. Men, everything you do, everything you say, everything, everywhere you go is meant to be an extension of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how it has to work. And don't get some harebrained idea and convince yourself that it's the will of God when it's really not. Don't be foolish like me. You understand that? You have such a great responsibility that when it's clearly the Lord's will, you must execute absolutely. But please, please recognize that the nature of sin is deceitful. And one of the primary ways of deceit is self-deceit. And suddenly, loving authority gets corrupted and corroded, and eventually it turns into some monster and then into some sort of abuse thing. I want to, man, listen closely. You are not allowed to claim this principle of loving authority and act like you're an unbeliever. You know what I mean by that? All right, thank you for asking. You are not allowed to lose your temper and call it righteous, okay? You are not allowed to lust in your heart and say it's okay because you're married. You understand that? You are not allowed to use your words to drive wedges and stakes into each other's hearts. You're not allowed to demean someone because you're loving, because you have the place of loving authority. You are abusing your position. You are distorting it. I want to ask you, did God the Father ever, ever do that to God the Son? And if the answer is no, then why are you? 
Why are you? Do you understand how serious this is? Our problem and our black eye in Christianity has simply been that we have known the word of God and we've not lived the principle as demonstrated between God the Father and God the Son. And if that's your issue, it's a huge issue. You are distorting the picture. A lot of times we look and say, well, uh, you, uh, you who are supposed to be willing and submissive, you're distorting the picture. I want to tell you, man, most of the time it's our problem. And we begin to justify ourselves. We come up with these arguments that make ourselves right. If you're searching for the argument to make yourself right, the answer to your dilemma is you're most likely so wrong. Do you understand that? Men, you are to care for your wife as Christ loved the church. Ladies, you are to submit to your husband as the bride should be submissive to, the, to her bridegroom. Would you imagine, ladies, you're saying to, the, to your Lord Jesus, I don't think so, you know? Now, I'm not saying you can't have these great mutual conversations. We do, and they're appropriate. But when the day is done, like my wife demonstrated to me, living truth, she was showing me what it means to be willingly submissive. I was distorting the loving, or the loving authority. Now, husbands, men, you look at what it says back in Ephesians just for a moment. If you read that carefully, 75% of this paragraph deals with you. 25% deals with the women. And the women's part is verses 23 through, through roughly uh, 24 but from verse 25 all the way down through roughly 30, that's you and I. Husbands, let's read it. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. I want to ask you a word. I want you to ask you this. Give me a synonym for the biblical word love in the Bible. What's one word synonym for it? Anybody? Sacrifice. Sacrifice. Very good, Randy. Anybody else? Loyal. Excellent. Good one. I like that. Anybody else? Care? Yes, that's in the text. We'll look at that. Kevin. Thank you, Kevin. He said the word I was looking for. <laughs> Selflessness. What's that? Time. Very good. Very good. I would, I would suggest that when you read 1 Corinthians 13, the predominant idea there is selflessness. Love is not rude. Why? Because it affects someone else. Love is kind. Why? It benefits someone else. Love gives. Why? Because it's someone else. Everything about God in the universe has always been outside of, for someone else. Salvation for someone else. Why is it that we can't seem to have that in our psyche? i tell you who I think about first. It's me. I'm ashamed of that. I think about my ease and my ways. And my life of, of simplicity. My wife is, is my bride. She's the one. Look at what it says. Husbands, love your wives as Christ also loved the church. Gave himself for her. Why? Look at all the things he was after. He might set her apart, sanctify her, cleanse her by the washing of water with the word. That, that it's unique in the original language. Rama, you know, this, this unit of thought, this statement that is meant to purify. He, he might present her. Everything's about the other person. He might present her. Uh, to himself a glorious church not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing i want to ask you man listen listen close 
Have the words that you said in the last week caused wrinkles in her spiritual demeanor? Huh? Have you caused spot in her spiritual perspective? You know, I have. Oh, man. I not only have married the living New Testament, I've lived someone who knows what it is to forgive. Her life speaks to me. That's that 1 Peter 3 thing. Winning the husband without a word by the conduct of his wife. That's what she's doing. It goes both ways. If the wife is not, is not following the word of God, husbands, you do the same with the conduct of your life. Husbands, it says this, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies, for he who loves him, his wife loves himself. This is all about how you're to respond. No one ever hated his flesh, but nourishes and cherishes. That means it, you feed and you, you value. That's how those two words are, are unique. Cherishing your spouse. I want to ask you something. Do you cherish your spouse, or is your spouse your project? Is your spouse your child? Is your spouse your roommate? All those perspectives are contrary to that passage right there. How do you explain those attitudes in relation to nourishing and cherishing? You cherish yourself, don't you? Well, how do you do that? You see, we are allowing contemporary ideas to continue the distortion of loving authority and willing submission, which God went to great extent to actually put it in the right format. And I don't know about you, but we are the only people group who are supposed to get this straight. And we are to be the people group where God uses us like we're wells of ink or paint and the tapestry of all the wisdom of God that he is using to draw the manifold brilliance of our Heavenly Father. And how many times do we continue to graffiti his masterpiece? This is why it's so important. I'm sorry we don't have time to exegete the rest of the passage, and I was doing a poor job of it anyway. But I do want you to meditate on this and be before your Savior. Let's pray. Our Father, this morning we come. We thank you for the Word of God. We thank you that you've given us opportunity to meditate on this just for a brief second. But, oh God, let your Spirit take your Word and continue to to massage the soil of our hearts that the word of God would find root and bring forth fruit unto righteousness in Jesus' name, amen.